Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I will never get the sound out of my head, ever. It, it, it rings in my head when I'm telling you this story just like it was happening that night. And I heard a very loud, this is exactly how it sounded in the exact duration. Boom, 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 boom. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. Most of the time, our lives change slowly. You move to a new town, take a new job, get married, have kids. And a few years later, you realize your life is completely different than it used to be. But violent acts, whether from bad luck, bad decisions, or some combination of both, can change your life in an instant. My name is Nicole Ivy, and I am the wife of Mark Ivy Sr. and the mother of Mark Ivy Jr. We moved out to Pennsylvania about 12 years ago from Utah, where we both grew up and were born and raised. And uh, Mark and I uh, were married in 2010. We were a Brady Bunch. It's kind of a a cute little love story. We actually had the Brady Bunch theme played at our wedding. We had all three of my kids and all three of his kids. So we have three boys, three girls. Oh, wow. We both had full custody of our children. So when we got together, we definitely made it a family. The good, the bad, the happy, the hilarious. They've all grown up very, very close together. So where did you settle down? We ended up purchasing a beautiful home in Ephrata. Pennsylvania. What's Ephrata like? I've never been. It's incredible. It's beautiful, very historic, I think. Coming from Utah, most things out here are historic. It's uh, much older, but beautiful. It's just a great place to live. But that peaceful family life was about to take a dark turn. The day was July 4th, 2020, a few months into the pandemic and nearing the height of summer. So during the day, there was a lot going on. We ended up having a barbecue for the family. All of the kids had at one point in time come over. And we had gone out in the front yard and lit fireworks with our neighbors. And then the rest of us went out to the backyard. We were playing games in the backyard. We have cornhole and whatnot. So sometime around 11, 11.30, I had gone to bed. And so had my daughter and her husband now, at the time was her boyfriend, he had spent the night and our youngest son went to sleep over uh, at a friend's house. So the only people that were awake at this time were my husband, Mark Sr., who was sitting out by the fire, and my son, Mark Jr., who was in and out of the house. There is quite a bit of distance between the fire pit and the backyard tables that Jr., was sitting out occasionally when he was in and out of the house. The next thing I know, 
I must have been somewhat asleep because I was startled, but I will never get the sound out of my head, ever. Boom, 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 boom. That fast. Now, here's the funny part. I was irritated. My husband, he's a goofball. He's always been a goofball, but that's that's the funnest thing about him is he's just always making someone laugh. Well, I didn't think it was very funny if he was lighting off fireworks, firecrackers at that time in the morning. And so the first thing I did when I heard that is I grabbed my phone because I wasn't going to go downstairs and I sent just this horrible text message. What are you doing? You're going to wake up the neighbors. Stop it. Knock it off. And when I hit send, his phone beeped on his nightstand. Oh. And that was really, really odd because if he would have been downstairs still and had not come up to bed, he would have had his phone. And so I wasn't going to lay back down. I was actually in the process, I think, of going to get up and go check something out. And he came through the bedroom door. Mm. There was something in me that knew because as he walked in the door, he did seem very, very pale. The first thing he said to me is, Nicole, come quick. I think Mark just shot someone. And as I'm getting out of bed, I am telling him, that is not funny. And I started walking closer to him and immediately saw blood just a little bit. Now I'm in panic mode. And he says to me, come quick, come quick. And so I run down the stairs and at the bottom of our stairs is our front door and I can see my son. Now, when I got to my son, our son at the time was 19 years old. He was very bloody. He had blood all over his face, all over his shirt. He, it, it was it was horrible. And all I heard was, I think Mark just shot someone. So my mind, I'm thinking gunshot. Mm. And I'm looking everywhere. I'm grabbing his arms. And as I'm doing that, he says to me, Mom, it's not my blood. And he's got the front door open. I hear sirens, but I also hear screaming. Mm. I can't even describe what I felt as a mom. So I immediately just bolted out the front door and started running down the grass towards these screams that I'm hearing. And my husband, I hear him in the back as serious as I've ever heard him. Nicole, stop, they have guns. And that made me stop in my tracks. That moment right there told me everything. No matter what took place, he would have not prevented me from helping someone. He mm. was still concerned. He was afraid. He was very, very afraid. Then everything else kind of goes slow motion, faster than I can possibly imagine. It, it was just chaotic. It wasn't long before we did see two police officers with the lights on and they had pulled up our street. They stopped and we had been preparing Junior the whole time. All I kept telling him was, you understand, the police are coming. You've seen all of this stuff on the news. I need your hands in the air. I need them to know that you are not a threat. And he, he was saying, I'm not a threat. I'm not a threat. I understand that, Mark, but there was a gun involved. They don't know that. I need your hands in the air. And I don't know how long it took, but I heard someone say who was the shooter. And Mark had it, Jr. had his hands in the air up at the top of the steps. 
And he said, I was, I'm the shooter. And then they made us come down the stairs. And once he got onto the pavement from the street, they asked him to lay down on his stomach, which he did. They handcuffed him. And unfortunately, while all of that was going on, I think they had already taken my husband. So many more officers had come into the environment. And to our surprise, now remember, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm in my pajamas. It's not cold outside. And I'm now being told that I am also detained. And they had me sit on my front porch telling me that I was not allowed to go in the house. I think the first detective ended up getting there around four, maybe five. And during this whole time, there, was, there were just officers guarding the entrance to, the, to our home. They did have us go in and get everybody out, who the only ones that were there left in the house were my daughter and her boyfriend, who were sleeping in the basement. It, you wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been able to hear any of this. Mm. So they were obviously quite shocked when I went down to get them, wake them up and say, hey, we're being detained. We need to be outside. The main detective came brought each of us into his car to question. And basically, I said everything that I said here because we didn't know much yet. I do remember and asked numerous times, this is all happening on my property. Why are we being questioned like we are? Yeah, there was a group of people who were strangers to you on your property that your husband and your son had gotten into some kind of altercation with. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why is it that suddenly, yeah, if these people were dangerous people who came onto our property, like, why are we being treated like this? Correct. Did you notice how they were treating the people who had were on your property? The ambulance arrived shortly after. All of the police arrived. And if I'm not mistaken, they had been taken in ambulance before the chaos left my front door, which was when they got my son in the back of the car and drove away. And were you taken to the police office as well? Or what happened from there on? No, they kept us detained on the outside of our home. The first time we were able to get access to our home was about 915 in the morning. Got it. So when did you start to learn the details of what had happened that night? Now, we didn't have access to telephones while we were waiting on the outside of the house. The police took my phone and have never given it back. By the time we got in the house and got access to our phones, my brother called me. Every single soul in our family, Utah, Colorado, here, everybody had already seen it on the news. And he said, hey, I'm going to send you a link. The neighbor uploaded the video onto YouTube. I want to know that you're okay to watch this. It's it's everything. It's the it's the entire thing. And I said I absolutely want to watch it. I need to know what's going on. So, we hung up. I went into the living room, opened up the link, watched it by myself. I was so excited. Hmm. I I can't even describe how excited I was to watch what I watched. And why was it exciting? Because I, to me, this was an attack mm. on my family, my home, my child, and no one was going to see it differently. 
I see. You were afraid that your son was going to be accused of having committed some horrific crime. You didn't even know what really had happened. And so here was this deliverance of confirmation that your son had been attacked, that he was perfectly had the right to defend himself, and that you had proof. Yes. Yes. That's exactly how I felt. Unfortunately for Nicole, and for Mark Jr. and Mark Sr., many other people who saw the video, including the police, came away with a distinctly different impression. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. So what exactly was on that video footage? You can find it on YouTube if you search for July 5th, 2020 Brawl Turns Into Shootout on Blackberry Lane in Afreda, PA. We'll also put a link in this episode description. The video is just over five minutes long, and it's taken from an outdoor security camera from a house across the street. There is no audio. The footage is in black and white, and a bit blurry given the distance. From the start, you can see Mark Ivey Jr. standing on his sloped front lawn holding his phone. A group of six young men approaches on the sidewalk from the left. At the same time, Mark Ivey Sr. walks out of the house carrying an AR-15 assault rifle. He walks down the front of his lawn to the edge of the sidewalk and stands a few feet in front of his son, aiming the rifle at the group of young men. They don't balk. They fan out and appear to taunt Mark Jr. until he approaches the white picket fence. For the next minute, Mark Jr. appears to have a heated discussion with the other six, who are mostly obscured by a pickup truck parked on the street. The whole time, Mark Sr. stands off to the left, aiming his assault rifle at the group. It's unclear when, but at some point in that last minute, Mark Jr. steps over the fence onto the sidewalk. Then, at 1.43, he throws a punch. He's immediately punched back, and less than 10 seconds later, Mark Jr. is on the ground, taking blow after blow from the other man. They tumble to the right, surrounded by the five others, Mark Sr.'s rifle still trained on the group. Now, visible from behind the truck, the video clearly shows the man on top of Mark Jr. punch him in the face repeatedly. One, two, five, ten, eighteen times, until he lets up, and Mark Jr. pulls himself to his feet. Another moment of posturing, and Mark Jr. walks into the street, hands at his side, and approaches the man who was beating him. He takes another punch to the face, but doesn't fight back. He points down the street, seemingly telling his antagonists to leave. He takes a second punch and doesn't fight back. His father is still aiming the rifle at the group, gets their attention, and from 2.45, 
the young men seem to argue with Mark Sr., who steps over the fence at 3.20. The video goes into slow motion here. Another of the five young men is posturing in front of Mark Jr. when his father walks up. Mark Sr. hands the rifle to his son, then takes a swing at the man who is posturing. He misses, gets grappled around the abdomen, and that's when the first flash of gunfire explodes from the barrel. Mark Jr. fires on the young men 15 times as they flee. In the course of firing, he takes five steps, moving from the street behind the pickup to the sidewalk, where he has a clear view of the fleeing men, his final shots occurring when they are about 30 feet away. The whole burst of shots occurs in about five seconds. In the aftermath, his father continues grappling one of the men, gets him to the ground and punches him at least 10 times before Mark Sr. and Jr. retreat to the house. So the next thing the detective did explain to me or notified me that we are filing charges against your husband. He's going to be in lockup. I was going to need to bail him out. But I do remember continuously, how can you come to this conclusion? They came to us. And he did keep telling me there's more to the story that you don't know. There's more to the story that you don't know. And of course, I didn't know any of the story. I hadn't spoken to my husband. I hadn't spoken to my son. So it wasn't until we bailed my husband out and he came home and told us his side of the story. So this part of what I'm going to say, I'm going to be up front. This is, this is all from Mark Sr., Okay. Um, I've talked to him enough about this. I've got it in writing. It, it, this is exactly what he said took place. Okay. He said that obviously the adrenaline was flying. There were numerous times that he believed that one from the five who were not a, constantly hitting my son was trying to take his gun. Mm. And he was constantly fearful. He didn't know what to do. At that point in time, there was nothing he could do. He was already in this position. Every step he made, he was terrified that he would make the wrong step. He couldn't lay the gun down. He knew the individual that was trying to get the gun would have picked it up and used it against him. Right. They would not leave. My husband demanded they leave so many times. They would not leave. He saw the next one in line to beat my son was hovering over my son, bouncing up and down. You can see him in the video, just ready, just like a prize fighter. And my son can barely stand. My son is saying, stop. I've told you I'm done. And the guy says, you're not done. I'm going to kill you. I'm telling you right now from everything that I know and that I've seen, my son would have been killed. They were not done. My husband will tell you point blank, his knees were buckling. He was barely able to stand on his own from the beating he had just taken. He would not have withstood that next beating. And as he's thinking that, he goes in between my son and the, fi and the final attacker, hands my son the gun and said, here, hold this. Mm. Full 100% intent that he would hold that gun and not shoot it. We are a family of guns. All of my children um, have been trained in guns. They've all got their hunter license. We would go to our uh, shooting range that we were had a membership to, 
here, hold this is a normal thing that Mark would say. And when you get told, here, hold this, you know the rules on how to hold this. Right. So I can absolutely see where he would think that that gun was safe. Of course, it wasn't. Not in the hands of his terrified son. And again, now I've spoke to Junior as well. Junior was literally terrified, literally his his memory of of the entire event is so sparse. I think that he was beaten so badly that he had no he still has no recollection of some of the of the memories. He does remember having the gun in his hand and he remembers knowing how to take it off safety which he did. He doesn't remember exactly where he was pointing, but he does also remember pulling the trigger. And he said they were going, they were going to kill me. They were going to kill my dad. None of the men were killed by the 15 shots Mark Jr. fired, but four of them were hit. One in the chest, one in the face and abdomen, one in the arm and one in the earlobe. A fifth man suffered injuries from his altercation with Mark Sr. But how did this whole thing start? That was a question only Mark Jr. could answer. So the night of this event, he was on Snapchat. And he ran across a Snapchat of an individual who he used to work with probably a year prior at a local car wash. And I've always said this from the beginning. My son was being a jerk. This young kid was showing his talent, doing a rap. I have not seen it. But my son posted on Snapchat, this sucks, you're terrible, whatever. And that led into a back and forth for what I'm understanding now to be about 20 minutes. One thing again led to another. And my son, unfortunately, on Snapchat, you think you're so big and bad, come to my house and I'll show you. We'll get on it one-on-one. Here's my address and hence where we are today. Our entire neighborhood turned on us like we were Satan himself immediately. I'm not one to hold grudges, but I'm telling you right now, the only, I find it so odd because now that I know the facts, six men, six strangers to me came to my home to commit violence and my neighbors turn on me because my son fired a gun. Nicole, in part, blames the media. The reframing from the media was immediate. Just story after story after story. Father and son attempted murder. It was horrific. Not one word about the six violent intruders. But even more so, she faults the police and the district attorney. Once I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my husband was not involved with these men coming to my home, we went to the police station to press charges against the six. Yeah. And we were told we could not. I had pictures blown up from video portions showing my son holding his hand out to say, where well, we're hearing him saying, stop, I'm done. And pictures of him being on the ground, being beaten. The number of hits was insane against his head and against the pavement. We had all of this, and we're just saying, what are you talking about? 
they were at my home. They assaulted my child. I have a right. We have a right to press charges. This is insane. Yeah. And the police officer that was talking to us was taking everything down because they refused to let us talk to the detective at that moment and then guaranteed us that the detective would call us back to get an official statement. Not a peep. We tried numerous times. I even, two weeks later, wrote a letter to my congressman explaining the situation, explaining how is this even possible? There is no, there's no way that you will get a fair trial if a jury is not allowed to know that these six violent aggressors were there to commit an assault. Right. How is this even possible? And my representative actually called me back on the phone, was super, super nice, but just point blank said that, you know, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but there's nothing that um, anyone on our side can help you with. This is a, a legal matter. And everyone's story is, all, is always, go get an attorney, go get an attorney. With what $500,000? Right, <laughs> right. Where are you going to get, how? <laughs> right. So do you feel like when it all came down to it, you weren't able to afford the representation necessary to really make the case for your son and your husband's innocence in this regard? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, a criminal defense attorney um, in the end talked my husband into taking a plea because he didn't feel that that the case had a chance because of the mentality of the jury pool. Hmm. So what was your husband charged with and why? So I firmly believe that the initial charges, the police believed that he had something to do with them coming to my home. And um, that was very, very quickly dismissed. And so their original charge was six counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated assault, six counts of aggravated assault, and one count of simple assault against the individual that he physically fought or attacked because he was protecting our son. Mm -hmm. So they claim that all of this was from him handing my son the gun. The handover of the gun that took place in less than two seconds is the whole case, is the whole reason that he is sitting in prison right now. So the police and the and the detectives, they're they're framing your husband's choice to hand over the gun to the son as like, here, son, go and murder these people Absolutely. as opposed to here, son, hold this gun so I can non-lethally engage with this aggressor who has been attacking you. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. It's mind blowing. And the way that they reacted to. You can listen in the when you read the transcripts, when he was being questioned in the room, there was just a complete and total flip flop in how they treated him and were reacting towards him after they got the search warrant back. The search warrant turned up 32 guns in the Ivy household. This shaped the way the police viewed Mark Sr., the way the media framed the story, and it would come to affect the jury pool as well. 
this is going to sound horrible, but you need to remember that we have six children. We are from Utah. We come both sides of our family, uh, our hunters, gun owners. Ironically, my husband's grandfather was a gunsmith who had just passed about two or three years. The summer before this event, we drove back to Utah to bring back the inheritance that he had received from his grandfather, which were quite a few guns, very old guns, and all of his gunsmithing equipment. The brothers and I took the entire gun collection and split it into three. But our family has really strict policies on when you can actually take ownership of these guns. Sure. Which typically is homeowner, good credit score. Biggest thing, we don't want you pawning the guns. (laughs) Right, right. But uh, when the search warrant came back and listed 32 guns in our gun safe, very large, still constructed gun safe, very secure, that also had, I think, six Christmas presents that weren't even taken out of the box. Um, My sons were given shotguns for Christmas the year prior. So there's a whole nother side of why there were so many, but they changed their entire tune when they got the results back. And you could tell that, uh, in my opinion, they needed to get this gun-toting individual off the streets. It sounds like your theory about what happened in this case is there was almost like a, a sort of political narrative happening yes. where here are the here's this family from Utah that has lots of guns. They must inherently be dangerous and murderous people because they own a quantity of guns that they're legally allowed to own. <laughs> And uh, again, like whether or not you have 32 guns in a safe in your house, none of those guns were used in the altercation. So why is that relevant? But also, didn't your husband say that the people who had come to assault your son were carrying? He believed that they were because my son ran out the back door, went towards my husband who was sitting at the at the fire pit and said, Dad, come help. There's a bunch of people coming to beat me up and they have guns. Ah, that was the statement made. He ran directly back outside. If my husband could have caught him, he would have kept him in the house. Mm. But he was out the front door. It's hard for people to understand, but we do have guns for self-protection as well as hunting. His initial response was to get a gun. There are strangers here. They have guns. I'm going to protect my home and my family. He comes out front. There's no one there. He's trying to talk to our son, and our son it won't answer. He didn't know at the time, but my son had seen them drive by. He knew they were already in the neighborhood, mm. and then they had parked on a different street. And it was about two minutes as my husband's trying to say, I don't know what you're panicked about. There's nothing going on. Come on. Come back in the house. Come back in the house. And then that's when you see on the video in straight line, six of them just walking up the sidewalk. A few minutes later, her badly beaten son was firing on the group of men. And yes, they did run away. Of course they ran away when shots were fired. The prosecution claimed that my son continued to fire as they ran away. When you watch it frame by frame, the firing did take place very quickly. I'm telling you, there was not time to contemplate 
So how do you think that this case sort of spiraled out of common sense and out of control? I do believe that the the ability to spiral out of control was the police and the detectives and even the district attorney ensuring that these six were not charged. That kept so much out of the public spectrum. Mm. So only half the story was told. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I sat in that courtroom on so many occasions. We were not allowed to talk about the violence that the six did because they weren't charged and they were the court's victims. Were the victims ever questioned in court? Did you have a chance to cross-examine them? Yes. What was their explanation for why they showed up outside of your house in the middle of the night? Because they were invited and it was an invitation. And that was fine. They said that they were invited to come. Yes. Their whole thing was that it was a planned fist fight. So is their claim and is the prosecution's claim that your son invited six people to come to his house and beat him up? Is that like the claim? (laughs) They even stated in court, the prosecution stated, it didn't matter that, that only one person was invited. You'd have to be stupid to think that people aren't going to bring their friends when they get invited. I never will be able to, but I would love to sit down with the jury and ask them. They viewed the attack. They saw the video. Now, granted, they were looking at a screen from across the room. I would love to know what they saw. Why is there not more interest in all of the violence that took place in this altercation? What do you think that that means about how we interpret violence in our society and who we decide is the bad guy versus the good guy? Why is there not more of a gray understanding of a situation like this? It is my belief that because this area, the gun-yielding person is always the psychopath, because only psychopaths would own a gun, only psychopaths would use a gun, it was that blatant from day one. Hmm. So another part of the gray area, every one of these six were known by the local law enforcement. even the bail bondsmen knew their names. He, he had been utilized for them. They were definitely had a history of not being the upstanding citizen. Then you have my husband. My son would be the same way. He just didn't, he didn't have any history, period. My husband has a history of being the most amazing provider to six children I think we had 15 people that were going to sit in his trial as a character witness, employees, employers, friends, his career. He's been in the same career for his entire career, never lost a job, never did anything wrong, doesn't even have so much as a speeding ticket. And yet he was crucified like he was. We found out, and this was very easily defined, the individual who was standing in front of my son at the end there and was saying, was jumping up and down saying, you're not done, I'm going to kill you. 
I found a newspaper article. It was he and his, he's a triplet, from what I'm understanding. He and his two triplet sisters were arrested for almost an identical event, but they did have a knife uh, in this situation. And the victim, the real victim in that situation was actually able to have charges pressed and she got a restraining order against him and uh, his two sisters. And this was never allowed to be brought forward in court? No. Nope. What ended up being the result of these trials? What? Where is your husband and your son now? So my son ended up getting convicted for a crime that has never before been on the Pennsylvania books. He was charged with six counts of attempted murder. And when the jurors went back in, they were told that they could choose a lesser charge if and so they did not feel that the charges that the district attorney was bringing were proper. And I think it's called attempted manslaughter. During the trial, the, the attorneys had, had come to the bench because they were discussing that since that this, this would be the first time it's ever been used in the state of Pennsylvania, they were concerned, but then both sides agreed that it was going to be okay. And so, yes, he was not convicted of what they were wanting, but the jury did choose a lesser. But in the end, the judge gave my son the exact same sentence that would have been for the harsher attempted murder. And he, he's now serving 22 to 50 years in Pennsylvania State Penitentiary. And what about your husband? My husband ended up taking a plea, which I am not and never was in support of. And I now do understand why he took the plea, because he was just beaten down. He, had, he was being told by his attorneys that, you know, Mark, if you don't take this plea, we have a 50-50 chance and you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Yeah. They had charged him with so many crazy charges that it was just, it would have ended up being close to 200 years if he would have been found guilty on everything. So he ended up with three and a half to seven years for handing my son the gun. And he will be eligible for parole on November 5th, 2025. So where does this leave you? <laughs> I have, and I still will, I will continue to fight. I write letters to the governor almost on a monthly basis. I don't know how many. I've gone through at least five rolls of stamps trying to get anybody to help me undo the unjust that's been done because I truly believe that if somebody from the outside came in to take a look at everything that has taken place, that not to mention the probable cause affidavit for my husband when he was arrested is an exact carbon copy of my son's. Everything is about what my son did. And yet that was allowed to become probable cause for my husband, which is really strange. And so what's left for me to do is, is uh, just strive every single day to make sure I don't lose my home. My other two sons actually <laughs> moved their families back in with me to help me pay my mortgage. And it's quite funny having that many people under one roof. And there have been so many times that they just want to throw their hands in the air and say, we need to move out. But their goal is to make sure that uh, 
we have a house for Mark to come home to when he gets out. It'll be huge for parole and not having to say that we're going to be worried about a landlord uh, evicting him because he is now a felon. Right. So how has the rest of your family handled and processed all of this? It's been up and down for everyone. So I have three biological children and I have three stepchildren. I consider all six of them to be mine. There have been numerous different spectrums all the way around of how they're dealing with the loss of someone. Financial loss obviously was was the main. My husband was carrying every single one of our children still on his insurance policy. So from a medical standpoint, it was extremely difficult for at least one of my children. She has a special needs child. She lost her, just like all of my children, we all lost our insurance at the exact same time, which left a, a pretty hard burden financially for her. Other children are just struggling with not having him around because he was such a, a positive part of their lives. And this all happened so quickly that none of us really had the opportunity to prepare ourselves for the absence. But we are all staying so strong. I, I couldn't be more proud of, of everybody. You should see our video calls. I visit Mark every week. I am there. Come rain, come shine. I'm there every single week in person. But we also have every single Monday, we have video visits. And they're just hilarious. Just all of us from different parts of, uh, you know, Colorado, Utah here, we're all just on there showing him our support and trying to uplift his spirits, which he has, his spirits are very, very high, all things considering. He wouldn't let it be any other way. And how about your son? Junior, his trip to me is a little bit longer. It's about half the time I visit him, but there will never be a month that he doesn't see me at least once, hopefully twice. And of course, he's now been in going on three years, but uh, he's lost about 40 pounds in the last two or three months. So that's shocking for me. And I'm hoping that it's just a matter of winter and him not getting out and doing much rather than being depressed. But if he is, he's, he's sure not showing it. He's, he's just like the rest of us. When you talk to him, he's got positive things to say, always, you know, telling his little brothers, good job, good job. I mean, I will get through it. We all will get through it. And and Mark and I talk, you know, the day he gets out, the employers that he was working with, they're still in communication with me. He still has a job. He's He'll be put on the, the books the, the day he gets out. So everything will go back to normal very, very, very quickly. And the reason I can say that is because I am not concerned about our neighbors. I'm not concerned about, you know, they'll get over it. <laughs> We'll move on and, and move forward. And I pray that uh, one day we can be as useful as you are going through what you went through and giving other people the opportunity to sit down and share their stories because you know how they feel. And uh, I guess that will be my goal. I'm learning a lot. Hmm. It sounds like you and your family are really trying to stay positive in the midst of a really overwhelming experience. And I wonder what about this whole experience has made you feel the most lost? Hmm. Not having my best friend sit next to me 
We had a wonderful life. We were doing wonderful things. He is, always will be, always was our entire family rock. And I am nowhere near what he was. Wouldn't have asked to be in this position. And for him, I will. But it's tough. It's tough. He should not be there. It makes the loneliness all that much more painful. From watching the video, and we encourage you to do so, it's questionable whether Mark Jr. acted in self-defense. Legally, Pennsylvania has a limited stand-your-ground law, which only removes the duty to retreat if facing an assailant armed with a deadly weapon. In another state, Mark Jr. might not have been charged at all. What's certain is that after being severely beaten, he had stopped fighting, taking multiple punches in the face without attacking back. He was trying to de-escalate. It wasn't working. And when his father handed him the gun and took on the man who was waiting to assault him in the adrenaline-fueled chaos, fearing for his life and his father's life, Mark Jr. fired. Those five seconds changed the lives of everyone involved. We don't know what exactly Mark Jr.'s punishment should have been. We will say 22 to 50 years is a long, long time, considering that no one died and that Mark Jr. was himself a victim of assault. As for Mark Sr., his role in fighting one of his son's attackers was certainly on par with the actions of the others involved, and none of them were charged with any crimes. As for bringing the gun into the situation, I'm sure that's a decision Mark Sr. will be regretting for the rest of his life. One lesson we can draw from this tragic event is that an AR-15 in the hands of a civilian is a tragedy waiting to happen. Another is about the lack of good outlets for young men to work out their teen aggression. But what I'm most left with is how much the societal response to such a tragedy impacts families and communities. Nicole, who broke no laws nor made any disastrous decisions, now struggles to keep her house and hold her family together in her husband's absence. That, too, is a cost of this tragic event, one imposed by the state. As always, thank you for getting lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And please, shout all over social media about Labyrinths. We depend on your enthusiasm to reach more listeners. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Robinson. 